This episode of Wasteland may contain mature themes, profanity, and descriptions of sex, graphic violence, and criminal activity. Listener discretion is advised. Telford Lane looks like any other street in the residential Central Florida town of Deltona. Split-level homes sit comfortably on neatly clipped lawns. Sprinklers cast rainbows over well-maintained palms and ferns. Kids ride their bikes through the scene as if through a tropical Norman Rockwell. Retirees sit at the tops of driveways in lawn chairs, glasses of iced tea at the ready. But there is also a darkness here. You can't see it, but you can sense it. It's what gets left behind only when something truly terrible has happened. It permeates this picturesque Floridian snapshot the way that cigarette smoke clings to expensive curtains. And it's just a very, very brutal crime. Volusia County's Sheriff calling what happened inside this rented Deltona home one of the bloodiest murder scenes his homicide detectives have witnessed. That I'm not gonna tell you how it was done or what was done but it was, and I've talked to our investigators, and we have a lot of years of experience here, and all of them the same way. They've never had one in this county that we have not seen one like this. What authorities are confirming, six are dead here, four men, two women, and a dog. There were signs of a struggle, bodies strewn all over the house. A neighbor is temporarily sheltering the parents of one of the female victims as they wait for positive identification. For me, it's hard because I got kids and find out, you know, how somebody, your family, around the corner, you can even go and see what's going on because they say it's awful what happened there. And they're devastating. I feel bad for them. Saturday, July 31st, 2004. Erin Bellinger hears a knock at her door. Perhaps the lateness of the hour makes her wonder just who it could be. Or maybe she already knows after what happened on Friday. Aaron opens the door to find Troy Victorino standing on her doorstep, all six feet six inches and 270 pounds of him. It cannot be overstated just how physically intimidating Troy Victorino is. Even a cursory Google search will produce pictures of him towering over his arresting officers. For those of you not near a computer at the moment, imagine Dwayne The Rock Johnson, only with a steely coldness in place of his charismatic charm. Victorino has come to confront Bellinger about what he believes to be the theft of his belongings. No doubt, Bellinger argues with him, probably reminding Victorino of what she believes to be the theft of some of her belongings, specifically property that had gone missing from her grandmother's home. The house in question is a vacant residence on Providence Boulevard that Victorino and his friend Jerome Hunter have moved into, uninvited. Victorino claims that Bellinger's cousin has given him permission to stay in the house. Bellinger disagrees. She called the police on Friday the 30th, as well as that Saturday morning, the 31st. It's early Sunday morning when Victorino leaves Bellinger's home at 3106 Telford Lane. He contacts police to report Bellinger's theft. The responding officer advises Victorino to make a list of everything that is missing, to which the irate man replies, I'll take care of this myself.
So often when true crime cases are discussed, the focus is on the criminal and the terrible thing they've done. Less attention is always paid to the victims. Criminals get books, movies, TV shows, and podcasts. Countless hours of media are dedicated to them. Everyone is so interested in how these people became what they became and why they did what they did. Perhaps storytellers and audiences refuse to focus on the victim because they fear becoming one themselves. Just like in a bad horror movie, where the plot is so transparent, the viewer feels the need to point out every act before it happens. Don't go in there. I wouldn't do that. We're plugged into the narrative knowing its movements like a well-rehearsed dance. We shout out what's around the corner to dispel the terror of it for ourselves. When it comes to true crime, the story is digested after it has already happened. The victim is no longer alive to tell of their history, their experiences, their hopes and dreams. They are seen only as they died. Who they were is secondhand information, gleaned from relatives, friends, and pictures taken in happier times. We're left only with the perpetrators, these monsters in human form. So before we begin detailing the brutal specifics of this crime, erroneously referred to as the Xbox murders, I want to share something about one of the victims, 22-year-old Aaron Bellinger. Aaron met her 30-year-old boyfriend, Francisco Roman, who went by the nickname Flacco, in the kitchen of the Massachusetts nursing home where they both worked prior to moving to Florida. Francisco was a Puerto Rican native and spoke hardly any English. By the same token, Bellinger didn't speak much Spanish. But despite this, they fell for each other. Their family said that the couple was too in love to let something as silly as a language barrier stand in their way. A few months before Troy Victorino came knocking on her door, Bellinger and Francisco packed their bags and moved to Florida. The reason? To start a new life. Troy Victorino was born in Jamaica, Queens, New York City, on December 11, 1976. He was one of six siblings. 2006 court documents detail his less-than-idyllic childhood, alleging that Victorino was sexually abused by a babysitter from the ages of two to four, and physically abused by his father until he was nine. Victorino was then committed to a psychiatric hospital for hearing voices and entertaining the notion of suicide. The boy was hospitalized for a month. In 1987, Victorino and his family moved from New York City to Deltona, which was, by his own admission, like culture shock. It was after Victorino's freshman year in high school that his mother Sharon believes her son's reckless and often violent behavior started snowballing. From December of 1993 until January of 1996, Victorino was incarcerated for Grand Theft Auto and setting his neighbor's car on fire. Then, from September of 1997 until October of 2003, he was imprisoned for a particularly brutal case of aggravated battery. Victorino beat a young man named Michael Stern so severely with a walking stick that the victim's face was partially crushed, resulting in permanent damage to his eye. The incident occurred a mere eight weeks after Victorino was released from his first prison stretch in 1996. And then there were the allegations of Victorino's involvement with the Latin Kings. 
According to the state of Florida Department of Corrections, the notorious gang boasts about 1,000 members in the prison system, with an additional 500 on the streets of Central Florida. The Latin Kings are known for their dealings in murder, drug trafficking, and prostitution. Members identify one another by their distinctive tattoos, notably the five-pointed crown, of which Victorino has two, one on his back and one on his foot. But a few tattoos does not necessarily a gang member make. I have been unable to find any hard evidence of Victorino's status as a member of the Latin Kings, only conjecture and rumor from people who knew him. But Victorino's reputation as a volatile man not to be trifled with is not up for debate. In 2006, Victorino was examined by three mental health professionals while in prison. He was diagnosed with a frontal lobe injury, something that is often associated with schizophrenia. This injury is also associated with negativity, impulse behavior, egocentricity, and violent outbursts. You see, the frontal lobe functions as a kind of natural stop button, and without it, a person can have a difficult time keeping their violent impulses in check. Wednesday, August 5th, 2004. After being evicted from Aaron Bellinger's grandmother's house on Providence Boulevard, Victorino and his friend Jerome Hunter are staying at a home on Fort Smith Boulevard. Two men, Robert Cannon and Michael Solis, who had met Victorino and Hunter four days prior, arrive at the house. In Cannon's SUV sits one of Cannon's female friends and her two sisters. It seems that Cannon's friend left belongings at the Providence Boulevard home as well, before Victorino and Hunter were thrown out. Cannon and Solace agree to help the girls confront Aaron Bellinger and retrieve their property. The girls urge Victorino and Hunter to do the same. The seven of them pile into Cannon's SUV and head for Bellinger's Telford Lane home. Bellinger shares the residence with her boyfriend Francisco, another couple, Anthony Vega and Michelle Nathan, and two additional roommates, Roberto Gonzalez and Jonathan Gleason. All the roommates are co-workers at the local Burger King. When Cannon's vehicle arrives at Telford Lane, the girls enter the residence armed with knives, but are unsuccessful in getting their property returned. Hunter and Solace stand outside armed with baseball bats, but everyone flees when the police are called. Though he stays in the SUV, this incident serves as Victorino's dry run for what's to come. The next morning, Thursday, August 6th, Cannon and Solace return to the Fort Smith house. There, Victorino outlines his plan to the two men and his roommate Hunter, a plan with a very specific inspiration. You're gonna do to those guys on Wonderland what you did to me. What did that mean? means I had to get in the car with his dudes and go over and get inside the Wonderland house. So you left the door unlocked? Well, no. Uh, ajar. Did you see Greg or Danny uh, go in the house? Did you hear anything at all? No. What about in the street outside? 
Did you see him in the street? What about in the street? Did you see him in the car or approaching the house? No. I didn't see Diles. I didn't see Greg. I didn't see Eddie after I got out of the car. Did you go back? Go back to Eddie's? Have no, you... no, 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 no. Did you go back to Wonderland? You sure? <clears throat> no, why would I go back? John, wait, you good, Bumps? This is it. Were you present when the murders happened? No. Stay on him, stay on him, stay on him, stay on him. Did you see him murdered? No. Are you calling me a murderer? Come on. So, um, when you left them, they were all alive. Yeah, when I left, they were alive. Wonderland is a 2003 crime drama co-written and directed by James Cox. It's based on the 1981 Wonderland murders, a grisly quadruple homicide that occurred in the Laurel Canyon section of Los Angeles. In the film, Val Kilmer takes on the role of porn star John Holmes, a man who finds himself in too deep with a notorious gangster named Eddie Nash. The Wonderland murders happened as portrayed in the film. Two men and two women were savagely bludgeoned to death with lead pipes by Nash and several of his henchmen. Victorino describes the murders depicted in Wonderland and tells his cohorts how he plans to do the same thing at Telford Lane. Victorino allegedly states that he wants to kill Flacco, Aaron Bellinger's boyfriend, for the supposed theft of his Xbox, among other articles of his property. When Hunter asks Victorino if the group should wear masks during the crime, Victorino allegedly responds, No, because we're not going to leave any evidence. We're going to kill them all. It may seem strange for these men to so quickly join Victorino in his murder plan. It would only be after the crime was committed that his cohorts would explain their readiness, claiming that Victorino had intimidated them. Cannon would later testify that he and Michael Salas had no choice because they were afraid that this man, whom they had met only a few days prior, would kill them if they did not do as he asked. But Victorino wasn't the only one who had a bad reputation and a dark past. Michael Salas was exposed to violence and drug use from an early age. When he was nine, his father died of AIDS. Salas would go on to be diagnosed with several personality disorders and drop out of high school in the ninth grade. At the age of three, Salas began conversing with his twin brother, who had died of pneumonia at six months old. His mother never sought medical treatment, though the adult Salas would later be diagnosed with clinical depression and mental illness. Jerome Hunter had the dubious distinction of seeing both of his parents committed to mental institutions where they still resided at the time Victorino hatched his plan. Whatever compelled these men to do what they did will probably never be fully determined. But according to Michael Salas, when Victorino asked each of his co-conspirators one by one if they were, in his words, down with the plan, all three men agreed. Friday, August 6th, 
2004, 6.30 a.m. A co-worker of Bellinger's enters the house on Telford Lane and is greeted by a grisly scene. The police arrive to find the six occupants, Aaron Bellinger, Francisco Roman, Anthony Vega, Michelle Nathan, Roberto Gonzalez, and Jonathan Gleason, dead. The cause of death is determined to be severe blunt force trauma to the victim's heads, consistent with a baseball bat. Each victim's throat had been cut, though these wounds were inflicted post-mortem. Still others have been stabbed multiple times. Aaron Bellinger's dachshund, George, is also discovered, stomped to death. But the worst abuse was still to come for Aaron Bellinger. It is determined that the young woman sustained post-mortem lacerations from her vaginal area and up into her abdominal cavity. There is no delicate way to put such a brutal incident. She was violated with a baseball bat. Troy Victorino and Jerome Hunter were arrested at the Fort Smith residence on August 7th. Robert Cannon and Michael Salas were taken into custody as well. Victorino denied his involvement. He claimed to be at a pool hall during the early morning hours when the murders were committed, but his co-conspirators quickly turned on him, implicating Victorino as their leader. During his initial interrogation, Victorino denied he was capable of murder. He said, I've done a lot in my life, but I will tell you this. I can sit here and I can look you in the face and tell you I don't have the heart to kill anyone. I don't have the heart to hurt someone like that. Victorino's accomplices at different times during their interrogations and trials imply that the larger, more imposing man had forced them to commit the murders. Most damning was the size 12 imprint from a lug's boot owned by Victorino left on the kicked-in door. Victorino claimed someone else had stolen his boots and worn them during the crime, saying he had a bad habit of taking off his boots and putting them on the porch when he got home. Victorino, Hunter, and Solace were tried together. After a month, Victorino and Hunter were given a sentence of death by lethal injection, while Solace and Cannon, in a separate trial, each received life without the possibility of parole. The death of Bellinger's dog, as well as her terrible post-mortem abuse, was attributed to Victorino, who continues to deny he had a hand in the murders at all. What is especially painful about the murders of Aaron Bellinger, her boyfriend Francisco, and their roommates was that the whole thing could have been prevented, regardless of how determined Troy Victorino was to kill them. In a sad twist of irony, it was discovered that, at the time of the murders on Telford Lane, Victorino should have been incarcerated. The day before he came banging on Bellinger's door, demanding the return of his belongings, Victorino was arrested for assault. However, he posted bail the very next day. Unfortunately, Victorino's parole officer neglected to immediately file the report concerning the arrest, a report which would have sent Victorino back to jail on a parole violation. Victorino even met with his parole officer on August 5th, the day Robert Cannon drove his packed SUV to Bellinger's house. A judge didn't receive the report until August 6th, after the carnage at Telford Lane had already been discovered. That probation officer, his supervisor, 
and two department administrators were fired as a result. But this can be of little or no solace to the families of the six victims. It was a horrific crime. The beating and stabbing deaths of six young people in Deltona back in 2004, what became known as the Xbox murders. Ringleader Troy Victorino was convicted and sentenced to death. West 2's Claire Metz reports now he's back in Volusia County asking for a new trial. Troy Victorino says the two attorneys failed to object to false claims prosecutors made during the 2006 trial. A dozen or so items that Victorino says prejudiced the jury against him and sent him to death row. Not a word from Troy Victorino. The now 35-year-old let a new lawyer, Chris Anderson, grill the old ones on the stand about their alleged failures, among them that they didn't call for a mistrial when co-defendant Robert Cannon called Victorino the ringleader, then refused to be cross-examined. I believe that we did call for a mistrial during that episode. It was pretty chaotic in the courtroom. Victorino and three others burst into a Deltona home in 2004 and took baseball bats and knives to the victims. Revenge, because one of them refused to give Victorino back some belongings. Victorino maintained all along he wasn't there. But at trial, the state destroyed his alibi witnesses. The appeals lawyer questioned why trial lawyers went with the alibi defense in the first place. And he told us that he was not guilty of the crime, that he didn't do it, that he wasn't there and that he had an airtight alibi. The appellate counsel says Victorino's trial lawyers failed on a number of other fronts, not objecting to gruesome photo evidence, victim impact statements that went too far. We asked him how his client is doing on death row. Death row sucks. Does that answer your question? No victim's family members were at today's hearing, nor was anyone here for Troy Victorino. We have learned he married in prison in 2009, married a former corrections officer. She was not in the courtroom. In Daytona Beach, Volusia County, Claire Matz, West 2 News. In March of 2017, Victorino's lawyer, Chris Anderson, speculated that his client, as well as Hunter, will almost certainly get new sentencing trials. This is due to recent decisions made by both the United States Supreme Court as well as the Florida Supreme Court. This news could not have come at a better time for the two defendants. According to the state of Florida's death row statistics, the average life expectancy for a death row inmate in the state of Florida is 12.86 years, which means that their time is nearly up. As of this recording, Troy Victorino remains on death row, along with Jerome Hunter. Both men are imprisoned at the UCI in Rayford, Florida, the same facility that housed and executed Danny Rawling, the Gainesville Ripper, the same prison that convicted serial killers Bobby Joe Long and Gary Ray Bowles call home. The Deltona Massacre, a title that shows only slightly more respect than calling what happened the Xbox murders, was a horrific tragedy. And it was one that took place a 30-minute ride from my front door. The proximity of crime can serve as a sobering reminder to those of us lucky enough not to be harmed by it. It's a reminder of something that is all too easily forgotten in the light of a sunny Florida day. Bad things do happen. 
The day after Aaron Bellinger and her friends lost their lives, among the flowers and testimonials left at 3106 Telford Lane, there was a note attached to a bouquet of white roses. It read, There really are monsters among us. This episode of Wasteland was researched, written, produced, recorded, edited, and in some areas, scored by me, Michael Paul Anthony. If you'd like to contact the show, the email address is wastelandpodfl at gmail.com. I want to thank you for listening, and if you like what you heard, please share it with a friend. Until next time. <laughs>